because the gospel is anti-sin, it is always countercultural. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, every niche of value weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dave, the bread to my butter, Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? <laughs> I'm great. I'm, it's Shrove Tuesday. It is Shrove Tuesday. Are you going to confession to get shrived? I will get shriven. Shriven. Shroven. Shrimp, yeah. shrimp cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll make it. And... Uh, I mean, it's pretty easy for me. It was pretty easy when you worked for the church. You say that, but I don't know of a single confession time that's available right now. Oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. I know. There's a local church that does uh, like a gumbo Mardi Gras and then confessions. I would hate <laughs> to be in that confessional about 45 minutes after the gumbo is eaten. The gumbo. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yikes. What uh, are you? How do you feel about Lent this year? Excited for Lent? Are you? ambitious are you okay dreading it i'm gonna say two things okay one i think everyone should use a guide during lent to help you get the focus off of you and do good prayer stuff okay number two every catholic thing in existence now is on the lenten train and i have gotten 12 trillion emails in the last three weeks of do our lenten thing yeah it's right. like our Lenten thing is new and different. It's like oh right, you mean no? Like it's a bunch of reflections. Come on, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. It's so funny. It's so funny because I mean, obviously, it's a great onboarding point for people to get into their spirituality and stuff. But it's just so funny. It's just so funny how they're they're all they're all coming out in pre Lent. In pre Lent, what are you doing for Lent? What are you giving up? Um, I mean, I'll give up. Uh, obviously the sweets and everything and um i'm also going to be doing some more intense fasting um you say obviously are you a sweets eater i don't look at you and think There's i'm, re- I'm, I'm real i'm really not but like if it's there so my family is so my family loves dessert mm. like my wife loves to bake and everything like that and the kids love dessert so if it's there i will but uh i won't now i won't um and yeah so i'll give up that um like are you, you an know, overeater also- of of dessert like if your wife's like hey i bake some cookies you eat like a sleeve of cookies in general i'm an over consumer of everything that i <laughs> can be consumed honestly <laughs> that's my that's I, I remember i told you this that I, that's why i never smoked a cigarette because i knew once i smoked once it would be all over for me <laughs> so i just stayed away from it completely my whole life Nice. Because I just overconsume things. Like I, in fact, like it's getting nicer here. The weather's getting nicer here, and I, I literally wrote down in my little. I mean, it's not. I don't know if you call it a journal or whatever. It's just a notebook I carry around everywhere. I imagine that, it has unicorns on the front, <laughs> and it's your dream journal. <laughs> Keep going. No, that's Father Dave Pavanka. I always uh, make fun of him because his his journal's always like so so feminine. Um, <laughs> No, uh, I literally wrote down like, you know, with the weather getting nicer, like you have to limit yourself to like one cigar a week because last year I fell in love with my deck and I was smoking cigars like every night and, <laughs> you know, I don't want to die. Um, so I'll do that. But mostly for Lent for me, uh, I'm going to be focusing on scripture, just uh, 
trying to rekindle my love affair with the word of God in the word of God. Huh? <laughs> and, um, you know, that was, it's, it's kind of a sad thing for me. When I was in high school, I loved the Bible. Like I was obsessed with it. And even when I got to Franciscan, like it was my, it was my entire life, you know, and not so much anymore. So I'd like to rekindle right. that. Yeah, it really was. I mean, that's we kind of became friends when because of that, yeah, because of you showing me your power verses that you were trying to memorize. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, I mean, that, when I went to Franciscan, I could almost like, um, like as a freshman, I could pretty much sit down and write from the beginning of the Gospel of John to the end. And now really? I can't do hardly anything. Yeah, mm. yeah. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, um, yeah. I also have follow up. We got some follow up, Dave. Hilarious follow up from our last episode. Oh yes, where, oh, where yes. I, made, I think you owe. I think you owe us something here. I owe our audience an apology because exactly nine people said that they have heard of <laughs> or read After Virtue from the last episode, and they all emailed me, and it was hilarious. Yeah, and for those of you who don't remember, Gomer acted like Alistair McIntyre was like his personal philosopher, so rudely. It would be like me being like, there's this guy I follow. His name's Pope Francis. You've probably never heard of him. He's just really something that I follow. And that's the way that you talked about Alistair Mack. <laughs> okay. Let me, can I tell you why, though? Can I tell you why? I have a history with Alistair Mack. Yeah, I know you do. I know you do. I wrote my senior thesis on him at a time yeah. when no one else in other than the professors knew who he was. Yeah. And I fell in love with this guy. And sang his high praises everywhere. And then all my friends uh, laughed and mocked me because they don't care about philosophy or theology. And now I'm at St. Anthony's and my buddy Brian Jones is a huge McIntyre fan. Huge McIntyre nice. fan. Yeah, he's getting his doctorate at University of St. Thomas down here. And so we actually have had many conversations about the McIntyrean approach to things. But uh, after I remember, virtue. Whew. I, remember you, I remember when you were writing that thesis and I remember thinking like, Oh, this is that. I, I remember looking him up and being like, "What? He's at Notre Dame, you know?" And yeah. And then he came to campus. I remember, and that was kind of a. I was not there for that. Oh, you weren't there. That was after you left. Mm. So it was so. So I always have a thing about people that I obsess over. Mm -hmm. Like I want to see them in person. You know, I want to see like how they stand and how they walk and stuff like that's that's very important to me. That's very weird. Go and, on. No, I know. I know it's weird, but I don't know. So weird. No, the way a man stands is, says a lot about a person. Uh, okay. <laughs> hey, I really benefited greatly from your intellect. How do you but stand? But mostly from your posture. Yeah. What's your gait like? <laughs> You're a weird no, guy. No, but but sometimes like, okay, so my, like, there's a few like, and I don't think this is the culture anymore. I'm going to get emails about this. Uh, I don't think this is the culture anymore, but at my son's school, he has some new young teachers. They just graduated. And when I drive through carpool, I just want to like, uh, like scream out the window, like stand up like a man, son. Like, <laughs> I know it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> You're so <laughs> weird. I love it. I love yeah. it. I love you, it. Well, can I, okay, I, okay. I know we're going off on such a tangent, but yes. one of my favorite confessors of all time, when I would go to him, his name is Monsignor Searles. I, I don't know anything else about him, but because I would just call him and be like, can I come over for a confession? <laughs> and he would stand when he would give me absolution. And he would kind of stand with like his feet, like shoulder width apart, like, you know, like in the ready stand. Like he was like he was going to 
bench press me. Yeah. He was old. He's super old. And that made a bit of impact on me. I don't know why. I still couldn't tell you why, but I really liked it. I really liked the fact that he would do that. And then, like, and then it, after he would do the absolution, give you a judo chop to the shoulder. No, he wouldn't. No. Oh. It was just the stance. Okay. 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 Uh, so I just got back from a deacon's conference. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to. I could tell jokes, but. It was awesome. A it deacon's was awesome. Council conference sounds about as fun as my Lent is going to be. Um, <laughs> no sweets for you. Uh, no, the deacon's <laughs> conference. It, it was uh, Congress. Congress. Woo. They do it once or twice a year. Oh, cool. That's cool. Yeah. It's for the Diocese of Dallas. So I drove up there. And I was able to do it for the whole day, three talks, and then get in my car and drive back home. So that was fun. And when oh, I arrived home, so I was thoroughly nice. sick. It was it was oh. rough. But yeah, the being close to home, like being doing more stuff in Dallas, like Prince of Peace and Plano. There's such a great group there. I'm starting to do more stuff in that area. But um, it was it was wild. It was wild. I, it was wild in my head because having a layperson talk to clergy to me still sounds like a very new thing, even though it's not. It still feels new, especially yeah. since I'm not like a theologian or I'm not a professor. Like I get why experts talk. I'm just the guy to get you motivated about Jesus. And um, Father uh, Father Emmett brought me out and thought I would be a good fit. And it was awesome. Like it really was. It was a good time. They were a good group of people. They were very honest. I was able to sit down with them and and you know in between the talks and stuff and have some good honest conversation. But. You know me, I make more jokes than I do actually uh, talk about Jesus. And I make fun of everyone there. It was so, it was such a delight. It was such a delight. We were waiting for the second talk to start and there was this long line for the bathroom. Yeah. And I said, oh dear Lord, you know you're at a deacon's conference and they're all of a certain age when there's a longer <laughs> line in the men's room than the women's room. And they all started. <laughs> oh, I would have died. That's great. <laughs> oh, this one guy goes, can't believe he told that joke. And I was like, this is what the rest of the talks are going to be like. Like, this buckle yeah, right. up. Right. So I only told them that they were going to hell twice. So it was good. That's good. good. Yeah. You I always have to have that co you're going to hell moment, I feel like. Right? Yeah. The problem is unless you're with teenagers. Because the truth is what I found is that if you tell teenagers they're going to hell, they love you even more. <laughs> that is they not just think been it's the hilarious. experience at St. Anthony of Padua. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are such high achievers. They're like, "Am I? Am I really? Oh no!" And then you're like, "Oh, oh no, gosh, right. you spiraled into anxiety." Yeah, I have found actually this recent uh, situation in Phoenix where that priest said the wrong. Oh yeah, things for baptism, or he said we baptize you. Yeah, yeah. That a lot of people have come really freaking out about worried about their salvation you know yeah so have you had any of that uh well we had to rebaptize a guy um it wasn't Whoa. it wasn't at our church but that's what set it off the first round of the we baptize i baptize um, yeah. which was up in what like a case in minnesota or something and right. uh this guy became catholic and then he said well wait a second i don't know i'm watching videos at this protestant baptism and he says we baptize, and I was there's no video of his baptism, but of all the other similar baptisms where they all do it at a big pool at the church, a big non-denom mega church here, they always say we 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 baptize right. you, your whole family gathered here, all of us watching today right. in the right. name of He who is Father Son. So when we saw enough of that, we were like, oh crap. 
So the diocese was like, you need to rebaptize this guy. So we had to redo the whole ceremony. And it was really funny because the priest omitted the liturgy of the word on accident. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was a, <laughs> so that, you know, that binders that priests use to help yeah. them, you know, yeah, yeah, mass. Yeah. Sure. Well, the binder said part one, part two, because there's some stuff you do at the introduction of a mass if you're going to have a baptism. Yeah. And yeah. so the preface of the mass, all that stuff, or whatever it's called. And so they're doing all that stuff. And then it said part four, baptism. And it skipped other, they skipped the liturgy of the word and the homily. But he was assuming the priests would know that we're obviously going to have a liturgy of the word and a homily. So he just looks down and he's not paying attention to the Roman numerals that are numbering. And then there's a big gap in Roman numerals. And it doesn't say on the thing, continue with the liturgy of the word as normal. So he's just like, all right, let's go to the baptismal font. And he invites everyone to And we're like two minutes into mass and already we're baptized. It's supposed to happen oh, after, wow. after the homily. So he baptizes him, confirms him, and then we go right into the liturgy of the Eucharist. So he comes out, this poor guy, he comes out to me and he goes, so was that a valid mass? And I was like, your sacrament's <laughs> old. Oh, Can you gosh. imagine? Oh, gosh. If right guy. now he's at another parish watching the video of your parish deciding whether he needs to be re-rebaptized. <laughs> it's like Inception. <laughs> it's like Inception. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it is. It's, it's, uh, that's, that's tough. But uh, What do you say to people yes. who think that's the church being legalistic? What do I say? Yeah, like if someone's like, oh, come on, I baptize versus we baptize. That's clearly legalistic. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I guess I've always kind of went back to the we don't have the right to say anything that Jesus didn't say, right? That, that you know, that he's, I mean, he's God, right? It's not, it's not like he was being ambiguous. So um, I don't know. I guess I should, I should think this through more heavily. When I tell it, it's my version of that answer comes from my prison ministry where they think we've yeah. added everything to the, you know, finished work of Jesus. Oh, yeah, right, right. And right. so what I just say is, so if they're believers, I get them to understand the story of Moses praying over the um, Israelites as they were battling the Amalekites. Yeah. Right. And when his arms would droop, the Israelites would lose. When his arms was raised up high in prayer, they would win. So eventually they rolled over a stone so he could sit down and then his buddies propped up his arms so they would always be upright. And I said, what do we know about that story? That the angle of his arms is what dictated whether people lived or died. And I'm like, isn't yeah. that insane? Isn't that crazy? Or the outward sign is what we know communicates the divine grace. So if his hands are no longer raised in prayer, then it, the outward sign of God trying to communicate his grace to these people is now being disrupted. When you destroy the sign, the grace doesn't get communicated because it's not imparting what God wants. So why does Moses have to strike the Nile with the staff? Couldn't he just, couldn't God have just done all this without any of these things? Right, right. It's because the sign constitutes how God chooses to make himself known. He re always reveals himself in a sacramental way. And so when I tell them that, I said, but just think about that. If his hands are at a 40-degree angle or a 30-degree angle, no joy. But if his hands are up high, praise hands like he's a 70s charismatic with a glad tambourine. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I went. I made it personal. It the Melkites are dead. And they mowed them down <laughs> like grass. Right? So, and then I also no, that's tell good. them I'm going to use that from now on. You know where I got that from? Well, not that in particular. I know where. 
What Frank Sheet? No, no, no. From our homeboy back in uh, the Forming Intentional Disciples group. Um, gosh, I'm blanking on his name. He just reached out to me. Man, I haven't thought of this guy in a while. My he just reached out to me, and I was like, I still use your stuff. He was a Knights of Columbus dude. Yeah, he was. He's super active in the in the forum, or he, he was at least back when I was active. But anywho, great guy. He gave a talk in the Knights of Columbus about Moses using all of these external gestures and signs and symbols in order to bring the 10 plagues or to do whatever. And that's what charged my brain to be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Huh. What is his name? What, uh, the moment I say his name, you're going to be like, oh, I love that I don't guy. know any of those people. Very right. positive, dude. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a heartless man. All right, we got some follow-up. We got some follow-up. 17 minutes into the show, we got some follow-up for the last couple episodes. So I wanted to do a, a quick... Um, run through with i think brianna's lovely email brianna is uh, a fan of the show and uh we've actually had pr several personal conversations their rcia program she's had to uh or not theirs but she volunteers with i think but they've had some issues over the years and so she was wanting to get clarity so me and her have talked several times but she raised a really good question where we talk about the organ as the primary instrument for the mass and things like that in the context of sacred liturgy she was talking about the history of black Catholicism and the theology of ecumenism for her um, for her bachelor's class and all that good stuff. And then they're talking about Vatican II and all this and the intersectionality with the Catholic Church and, and black Catholics in particular. And so we talk about how we need to stop making the mass accessible because the mass is not the primary means of evangelization, but the summit of evangelization that has already taken place over a long period of time or through very intentional means. You mentioned that the organ is to be the preeminent means of worship because it's the closest to the human voice, musicum sacrum. However, when we are looking at the sacred, where are we allowing for local customs and culture to step in and make the mass sacred to those people? I've been really pouring over that because the way that we have placed Latinization of the mass and the key way to celebrate the mass, but ignores areas of the world too humid to keep an organ or piano or where it would cost prohibitive for purchasing and maintenance, it especially came to the forefront of my mind when discussing Aboriginal peoples in Australia and Africa who have different expressions of sacred through their own practices. We are blessed with a cult, uh, church that is wide and applicable to all people, but we also can be uh, recognizant of the culture of others within that desire for the sacred. Thank you. What would be your first thoughts, Dave? Well, okay. So my first thoughts are that the church has always, uh, how, does, how should I say this, allowed for ish economic and preventative issues, you know, right? So uh, the the big example was the one that just happened at the Amazon Synod where they they talked about can we uh, can we use a different kind of bread and the and the Vatican said absolutely not you can't you must use wheat right and and the reason was in the Amazon it's so humid that they were worried about mold and things like that okay but in in but what the church will do is they'll give as much as they can right they give as much as they can so for instance like you can still have the mass without an organ you don't necessarily have to have an organ right does they're not we're not saying that but the ideal would be there the, the other thing i would say is um people use this argument all the time about africa right the about like the cultures there and i, I you know when we were at franciscan cardinal orinze used to come a lot i don't know if you remember that he used to be there often and i remember one of his talks was specifically about this that people he hears people around the world always using 
Africa as the example to in order to forward like different forms of liturgy. And, you know, Cardinal Renze was he literally started as a, a pagan. I mean, he like he, his tribe was like like they were yeah, a fire totally or something they like that, the, you know, like yeah. yeah, things like that. Yeah. And so he of, of all people would have any excuse, you know, to in, enculturate the gospel there. And he did not see that as a valid form of enculturation. So um, he, he would say, like, no, that's not the place for that. Now, I, I know that there's some allowance, but I, I don't know. What, you, jump out there. I mean, you are always having these conversations with Father David. I'd love to know what he says about it. Well, uh, you know, we haven't actually talked about this. We're still trying to get our culture aligned. But um, within the context of culture, when we evangelize, we have to realize that the gospel carries with it a culture. First, it carries with it the Jewish culture, that you can't know the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. You can't know these things without being a part of these things. So while we can adapt in pedagogy, we can adapt people who have never seen sheep and understanding of what a shepherd is, right? We can adapt those stories, but we don't then get rid of the stories of the shepherd and the sheep and all that stuff, right? See, this is one of the funny things about enculturation. It, it tends to be very selective, and it also tends to ignore the fact that the gospel is a culture. Faith itself is a culture, that it cultivates and creates cultures, right? And so you can look at Europe as that which is the greatest right. example of and the greatest failure of Christian culture, right? Because because of the collapse of the Roman Empire, something new entered in and it used the old Roman Empire stuff. It used the Germanic people stuff and all sorts of, you know, Greek influences and all that. But it ended up being this this utterly unique culture that wouldn't have existed if it just baptized the Roman Empire. Now, the next thing is to say, like, OK, so this is uh, Cardinal um, Siraz thing was there is a part of becoming a Christian, that means you're leaving your culture behind. And I think Colonel Ratzinger talked about this in either in Truth and Tolerance or in the his liturgy book, Spirit of the Liturgy. But it's like, okay, but conversion also, it doesn't just mean we adapt everything in, in terms of enculturation. We make the gospel no different than the daily life of a pagan to make it easier for a pagan to become a, a Christian. What we mean is that there are authentic elements within the culture that can be utilized and amplified and vivified by the gospel so but there are parts that can't right just like the roman empire like you can't be pro jesus and pro gladiatorial combat right right like they the games had to end kind of right kind and of. so just kidding yeah <laughs> david starting his own <laughs> fight to the death ring but the more we give ourselves over to the gospel the more we realize because the gospel is anti-sin it is always countercultural. Because the gospel is anti-sin is always countercultural. because every culture, including European culture, has within it the elements of sin and disunity and all of that stuff. Now, that being said, there are other ways of incorporating local cultures into the wider experience. Now, some ways that they do that. Yeah, what are those? Is first and foremost, well, majorly it's a right. Oh. Right, you would have a right. right, right like, um, like the Indian Catholic right. They're so cool. Yeah, the Cyril Malabar right. Yeah. The Cyril Malabar right is beautiful. It is incredible. It is done in their own language. It is intense, right? And it is also great for those, for many Catholics to who have a significant cultural connection 
to the faith through their culture that they can have a right. Now, in the West, because of the way the papacy had access to all the Western nations, right, right, right. that never took root in, in the United States, it, or in the United States, in Europe. It kind of did in France. There was a lot of very pronounced French things in French Catholicism, but it never became, there never was a French church. There was the Ambrosian Rite in Milan, but that wasn't all Italy. There's Greek and Sicilian rites down in Sicily and on the lower parts of, of Italy. So there are a lot of cultural diversities when it comes to the liturgy, but kind of the highest form, like maybe in the future, there could be an African rite or a Chinese rite or a, you know, whatever rite that enables cultural expression to be baptized and adapted. But what we are is the Latin Roman rite. And so when we go forth and we are calling people to convert and they convert to us, they are converting to the Latin Roman rite. That being said, the last thing is if you do not have cash money for organs, right? everyone has what every folk culture, aboriginal culture has in spades, which is the human voice. And that's what we need to first and foremost cultivate within our worship. Yeah, agreed. And uh, I think I think one of the things that we have to just remember is that, like, you know, when we talk about restoring the sacred, when this conversation came up, we're so far away from some of these discussions, like organ, organ or not. What we want is just some sanity in the liturgy right now. I'm not saying we shouldn't have those discussions. What I'm saying is, I I just would like for people to receive communion reverently, you know, like I, I would like those kind of things. So I, I don't want to be, uh, I'm not ready to be a nitpicker right now and nor am I educated enough on it, uh, to, to, to be able to do that. But I do want to have that conversation of like, look, this is, this should be awe striking. You know, the fear of the Lord should strike us at how we worship him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And when we talk about this, Cardinal Seurat, I brought up this quick little article in practice, enculturation within the liturgy has often reduced has often reduced worship to a cultural variety show, highlighting the use of music, language, instruments, or dances from varying cultures. Now, I have been on the receiving end of this where it's like, oh, well, we want to tap into the local culture. And what that means is just what they have. It's a variety show. It's not authentically incorporated. Right. So you're saying like they have like a local dance troupe or something. Yes. Yeah. I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. And then the dance troupe had these two girls had a dance competition in yeah. a dance off right. in front of everyone. I'm like, this is not about the liturgy anymore. Elida Cardinal Seurat's definition, authentic enculturation will allow the liturgy to be celebrated in a manner that is authentic cosmic and eschatological symbolism will become clearly evident so it can reorient a culture, especially our own culture, drowning in the deep and deceptive waters of mechanistic autonomy. I love that because one of the things that I think people miss is – Oftentimes, when people are championing the liturgy as it ought to be or, you know, as an old form or new form or whatever, we tend to have this vision of the kind of the perfect and then everyone else is deviating from it. And you're all the enemy. What we want to do is we want to see how once you understand the nature of sacredness and keep that sacred um, and that the church has given us 2000 years of an understanding of sacredness for a Western culture, what we want to be able to do is embrace that and then draw on other cultures as we right. fight our own Western culture, which is materialistic, atheistic, secular, mechanistic. Like there is nothing more damaging. No African culture 
is worse to evangelize oh, yeah. in oh, yeah. than our modern secular mechanistic culture. And so I, I, the reality is everyone uses Africa, just like you said, but I went the African church to inform and the Hispanic church, right? All the, the Latin American churches and all their diversity to challenge the automatism and, uh, atomization of of the american western church i think we are i think we are so dead right now in america because we cut ourselves off from family from symbol and from grace that we uh that we desperately need people who believe this stuff yeah desperately yeah i i agree and we need to need i and that is happening a little bit i mean we have there are missionary orders in america from india and africa you know oh and they're re they're recolonizing america with the gospel right like yeah yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The fact I mean, like, if you think about it, it's crazy that we are bringing all of these Indian and African priests over in my diocese in particular, in order to serve the lack of vocations that we have here, they have a super abundance. So it's like we sent our people over there to evangelize. They're evangelized. Now they're coming over here yeah. to re-evangelize us. And I think that's incredible. And we desperately need people who are evangelized and actually believe what they're saying who don't just feel like it's a career trip. Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, I make that joke all the time that I would, I'd take, you know, paganism over uh, cultural Catholics any day for for evangelization's sake. I mean, it's there's nothing harder than someone whose heart was once kindled by the gospel and has now gone cold. You know, usually by choice. Yeah, it is true. It is true. So. Going forward, one of the conversations that we want to have about the liturgy and evangelization, and we de- this is not a liturgy podcast, obviously, because we're demonstrating our profound ignorance, but the the idea is the Mass is not the primary place of evangelization. The Mass can evangelize. The beauty of the church can evangelize, but that's not what it's there for. It's there for the worship of God, right? It's the prayer of the Son to the Father that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, get to enter into. And so when we turn the mass, that our fear is the adulterating of the mass so that it becomes easy for people who are non-believers or half-hearted believers to come to church. If it takes a circus to get them to church, it'll take a circus to keep them into church. And that was said by the founder of Youth for Christ, right? So that should go very, very far in our understandings. Like the idea of of constantly needing to create experiences and all of this stuff in order to get people into the mass means that we ourselves as individuals aren't doing the evangelization. So one of the things that I said at the Deacon conference is you need to let, like we need to stop letting the laity be clericalized as Pope Francis has said numerous times in the Aparecida document has said, we need to stop letting the lay people be clericalized because our mission is not to be sacristans and extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, et cetera, et cetera. We can, right. but that's not what we're called to. We are called to go out into a cold world and to bring the light of Christ, right? And, and I said to them, I said, the moment you lose sight of your vocation as a deacon, and we begin letting you know lay people adapt quasi deaconal and quasi priestly things. It's like that's the moment where you're letting lay people get off the hook for our mission, right? Our mission is to go out there and evangelize. Our mission is not to be super Catholics. And how do you know I'm a super Catholic? Because I'm a lector, I'm a greeter, I'm an usher, and I'm an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Like, yes, it's great to be all those things. It's fine, but don't think then that 
I'm doing what God has called me to do because you're not. You might be helping out at your church, but what God commissioned you to do is to go and make disciples of all nations, right? And if you ain't doing that, but instead you're hanging out with all the people who agree with you over at St. Such and Such, you know, with your fellow sacristans and whatnot, it's like you're missing, right? But you're missing the, the, like how many people say, like they say, hey, I want to participate more in the mass, so can I be a lector? Yeah, or- And our first, my first impulse is no. Yeah, right. Because that's the Me wrong too. attitude. Right. Or or people who will even, they'll even skip that step and say, well, I'm a great Catholic. I do. And it's lecture. It's extraordinary minister. It's usher. It's, th- they'll come right out and say that. And I'm always like, no, that doesn't mean anything to me. Like, yeah. you know, it really doesn't. It's holiness, holiness, holiness. This, this is why, like, I, I mean, I know people, people probably roll their eyes when I say this because I said it so many times, but the saints answered the common call of all Catholics. And so like, it's really important. We understand that, right? It's not just like the person, you know, in your life, who's the most Catholic person, the saints answered the call correctly. It's not that they're like superheroes. That's what we're called to be. We are called to be saints. Every single one of us. It's not like, Oh, some are, some aren't, some have the gifts. Some don't, some God calls, some don't No, That's, that's ridiculous. It's, Every single one of us is called that way. And to not be a saint is a failure. Yeah. Amen. Amen. All right. I got nothing, man. My throat is killing me and I'm about to die here. We call the ambulance nine wham wham. Well, email us with any questions you might have at EKSB at ascensionpress.com. That's EKSB at ascensionpress.com. We love hearing from you guys. And also, we haven't asked for for you guys to do anything in a long time, so if you that's true feel called, if you've been blessed by this podcast, feel free to jump on whatever you use to listen and give us a rating. We we'd love that. Also, just to let you know, I got an email from Ascension that they have a new program called Venture. It's coming soon. It's teenagers, uh, quick journey through the mass kind of thing. Or quick journey through the mass. Here I am, uh, such an idiot. It is the like, uh, what's his name? Jeff Cavins, unlocking the mysteries of the Bible. It used to be called Quick Journey Bible Timeline, whatever. They're doing it. It's called Venture. Good old Mark Hart is re-recording it. They have a whole bunch of new presenters. Eight weeks. I can't wait. You know why? Because I'm literally doing it right now for my high school freshmen. I'm walking them through the unlocking the mysteries of the Bible with my talk. And we're just plowing through, and now they're finally coming out with an awesome high school version. I can't wait. I can't wait. Thank you, Ascension Press. You are beautiful. God bless you all. Bye. Bye. Bye.